Well, Happy New Year, guys. It's a new year. How many of you had any troubles in 2023, the year that's just gone by? Okay, those that didn't raise their hands, make note of them and let's ask their advice. What is their secret? Uh, how many of you are expecting any trouble in 2024? In your own life, in the world, anything? Yeah, I got more, more hands raised. <laughs> well, it is a troubled world, isn't it? It's very troubled. Um, so before we talk about how troubled it is and what the remedy for that trouble is, let's pray and lift our time together to the Lord. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the joy of sharing your word together. As we read it together, we ask you to open our eyes and be, help us to behold the wonderful truths that are there. We ask you, Holy Spirit, who inspired your word to inspire our hearts. Write, them on the, on the, write those words on our hearts so we can live them better in the days to come. And I pray that as, as Paul prayed for his sermons, we pray that the edification, the encouragement, the comfort that's supposed to come with the hearing and the application of your word would be ours today. And Lord Jesus, the living word, we ask you to bless your written word as we read it and as we try to understand it. And we ask in your wonderful name. Amen. I was reading World Magazine, I think I got it this past week, and it has a summary of all the things, uh, you know, that they wanted to highlight in 2023. Uh, boy, there's a lot of trouble in the world. Uh, so I thought I'd take a couple of them and, and, and share with you just as a little reminder in case you needed reminding of how, what a troubled year we've had. There was government troubles. The former president is indicted on criminal charges, which was a first. The current president and his son are being investigated for possible criminal activity. The House of Representatives took 15 rounds to elect a Speaker of the House, which they later kicked out and led by a coup from his own party. And then it was followed by a month-long wrangling, 11 candidates and multiple failed votes to get the current Speaker of the House. Another House of Representative person was kicked out on ethics charges, expelled. So that's just the government. And then there's cultural things, financial things, banking, financial woes related to interest rate hikes and, and some bank collapses. Then there are six people that were shot to death at a Christian school in Nashville. Vermont passed a law allowing and inviting non-residents to come in so they could participate in their assisted suicide laws. Ohio voters voted to approve a state constitution amendment to allow the right to abortion. And then there's international troubles. China, they, was, they were caught using TikTok and possibly balloons to spy on us. And then China's parliament rubber stamped a president, they call him, for an unprecedented third term after he had led the way for abolishing term limits. And then they appointed him to continue as the general secretary of the Communist Party and as the chairman of the military wing. Talk about complete dictatorship. We're giving you the government, the, the party, and the military. And then there were, there's the war in Ukraine entering its second year. And then there's the brutal attack on Israel, killing over 1,200 people and launching the current Hamas-Israeli war. In Birmingham, England, police arrested and ticketed pro-lifers for silent prayer outside of an abortion facility. Then there's natural disasters. Canadian wildfires scorched 45 million acres. 
Hawaiian wildfires spread at a rate of 60 miles per hour, ravaging 3,000 acres, destroying 2,000 homes, and killing at least 97 people. The longest-lasting tropical cyclone in history killed more than 1,400 people after making two landfalls in southern Africa. The Libyan city of Derna was inundated with a two-story wall of floodwaters that washed away a fourth of the city, killing 4,000 and leaving 40,000 homeless. And then, of course, we know about the two devastating earthquakes in Turkey, killing 50,000 people estimated and displacing a million others. But maybe you're not thinking about that as the new year enters. Maybe you're concerned with personal troubles. Sometimes the personal trouble is so large in your life that you just can't handle carrying the weight of the world's troubles. Maybe there's health, financial struggles, struggles with your spouse, struggles with kids, or just everything breaking down. One of the things that troubles me often, and those other things I mentioned are huge, well, not the spouse thing. The spouse thing's going pretty well. But there, uh, one of the things that troubles me often is everything is broken. Everything I try to do is broken. I can't even find my keys half the time. So, that, you know, it's just little things like that to things like you try to fix this and, and it's not fixable. Or my computer doesn't work. I'm, some, I'm computer challenged enough that, you know, I can't figure out what the problem is. So I have to call Frank Kittle or somebody to help me out. In fact, every area, every area of our life and every era of man's life on this earth is a troubled time. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve that strained, that, that, well, that did away with their intimate relationship with God, strained their own relationship, and then had one son of theirs kill another. Ever since then, and until that last Adam comes again, it's a troubled world. It's a fallen world. Man's era ends, in fact, with a time of trouble that Jesus said that was, has not been since the beginning and will not be ever seen again. That 6,000-year era, if, if you're a 6,000-year uh, chronology in, in Scripture, uh, is started with trouble when the fall is going to end with a great time of trouble where God's judgment comes to try to remedy some of that trouble. So what's the solution? What is the remedy for a fallen world? Well, there is a remedy, by the way, and that remedy is a person. It's not a doctrine. It's not a church. It's not a matter of systematic theology. The remedy is a person, and that person is Jesus. Every problem finds a solution in who he is and what he does. Let's take a look at who he is. That makes all the difference. Let's consider who Jesus is and what he's done by looking at three passages. Two of them are from Hebrews, one from Colossians. The first one deals with the supremacy of Jesus. They actually overlap quite a bit. So it's a little arbitrary for me to call this one the supremacy of Jesus and the next one the centrality of Jesus, but let's do it that way. And this first one is from Hebrews 1. I'm going to summarize. It's already been read. And by the way, I'm going to refer on the slides that you have. You will not have any of these scriptures, but you have them in your bulletin. I've just got the outline portion, and you have an outline here where you can fill out. But the scriptures themselves, if you want to refer back to them, make sure I'm adequately interpreting that, then they're, they're in your bulletin, at least if you like the New King James Version of it. That, that's in there. 
the supremacy of Jesus. It says God at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, who he has appointed heir of all things. And then it lists another seven items or, or, or seven items total. And I'm not going to uh, read those seven items because we're about to get into them in detail. First of all, the book of Hebrews, from who, where two of our passages comes from, was written to a group of Jewish Christians, it appears, many of whom obviously were suffering some troubles, persecutions, and trials of various kinds. And it was written to the Jewish Christians, highlighting, like perhaps no other New Testament book does, the incredible fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, all the foreshadowings from Melchizedek to the priests to the sacrifices offered and how that was fulfilled in Jesus. It shows how the new covenant captures all the things that were promised in the old covenant and that were foreshadowed. It captures them in a small way in those little 13 chapters and shows you very clearly how the Old Testament was fulfilled. Very important for Jewish believers. And the focus in Hebrews is on who Jesus is. He's fully God, fully man. He's the Savior of the world, and He fulfills every prophecy. He's on every page in the Old Testament, and Hebrews gives you a little sampling, a clue as to what pages he's on. Hebrews also frequently encourages its readers to endure tribulation and to be faithful and not forsake the faith or forsake the assembling of yourself together to encourage that faith. And it emphasizes, most of all, the trustworthiness of God's promise. It, it has God swear by two great things. You know, he's, he's going to come back again and again to God has given us an oath that his promises are true. So consider some f uh, key phrases in this text. Number one, God has spoken. In time past, he has spoken. And now in these last days, he says he has spoken. God has never left himself without witness. When Francis Schaeffer was dealing in the 50s and 60s, with a very unbelieving uh, culture and a lot of intellectuals, he wrote a couple of books. The first one was, he has, um, God has spoken and he is, now he is there and he is not silent. Sorry, uh, the title uh, ran away from me just for a minute. He is there and he is not silent. He has spoken. He's not only exists, but he's spoken. And God has never left himself without witness. You can track through from Adam to Daniel. About every 500 years, there's a big thing. It may be a flood of Noah. It may be Enoch's prophecies, Abraham, Moses, David, and then finally Daniel and the prophets that all those, many of them, the major and minor prophets, all collected together right around that time, 500 years when there was the, Israel was sent into captivity and all the things that surrounded that. And then 500 years after that, basically, roughly, you have Jesus coming. He's always leaving you a monument. He's always leaving you a prophecy. He's always giving you something that indicates that he's there and that he has not forsaken his people or the world. And then it says, in these last days. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The Hebrew writer is writing in the first century. He says, in these last days, he's spoken to us the final truth through his son. Last days. We talk about the last days thinking it's the end of judgment. But the last days, many times in Scripture, uh, began with the advent of Jesus. 
He was sent in the last days, and it captures, the last days often captures the first to the second coming. That period of time, those are the last days. And if you subscribe to, like, like I was saying, the, the uh, seven divine week, the Sabbath week of God, the seventh day of that divine uh, calendar week being the millennium, then basically half of the last half of the week are the last days. The first half or the first four days are the former days, and the last three are the last days. That, that fits a lot of things like Jose and a few other things. But just let that slide by if you're not a 6,000-year subscriber. At any rate, between the first and second coming, we've already entered the last days. There's going to be the last of the last days, and Jesus talks quite a bit about that, because when he came the first time, he talked about what's going to happen during these last days, including how it ends. Now, Philip's translation, I like it, it, the way he says it. God gave our forefathers many different glimpses of the truth in the words of the prophets, but now, in the end of the present age, he's given us the truth through his Son. So consider the seven attributes he lists here. I'm just going to read through them real quick. He's the heir of all things. Romans 8 says, He that spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him give us everything? So what God has done, God has said, Jesus inherits everything. Jesus gets it all. And if you're in Jesus, you get everything with him. If you get him, you get everything. Without him, you get nothing. It, it, it reminds me of C.S. Lewis saying, if I look at heaven, I get earth thrown in. If I keep my vision here on earth, I lose both. With Jesus, you get it all. Number two, he's creator of all things. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made, John says in the first chapter of his book. God made the whole universe, Philip's translation said. Third, he's the brightness of the radiance of God's glory. I love that. He's the radiance, the brightness, the glory, the majesty, the beauty of God, the, the, the holiness of God, the purity of God comes through Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's a light, and he said, I am the light of the world. He's the glory of God. He, next, he's the express image of God's person. Other translations say the exact imprint of God's nature, using that analogy of when you have a stamp that imprints something, and it imprints exactly the type the copy, like the original. He's an exact representation. Phillips says he's a flawless expression of the nature of God. In other words, he's divine. He's God in the flesh, Emmanuel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's divine. He upholds all things, is the next one. He upholds the universe. ESV says he sustains all things just by his Word. Philip says he is the upholding principle of all that is. And Colossians 1, where we'll get to in a moment, says in him, everything holds together. It all consists. It's all held together like glue by his word. He is our redeemer. Notice that the next line says he's purged our sins. He's redeemed us from sin, death, and hell. In other words, trouble. All the trouble that we have with our culture, hopefully not many troubled with our church, but with our community, with our church, uh, uh, with, the, with our state, with our country, and with the world, all the trouble we have, He is the remedy. He is the Redeemer. 
He's redeemed us from that sin, that trouble, that death, and ultimately hell. Isaiah 63 says, I looked and there was no one to help, so my own arm, my own arm brought salvation. Jesus is God's own arm. It's symbolic that when he sits at God's right hand, when he lifted up on the cross, he was lifting up his right hand for an oath, just like they were doing in the old days of the covenant in the Old Testament. With their wrists slit and the blood running down, they made a covenant, a blood covenant with one another. God was raising his right hand, his own arm, his own hand brought salvation, and he now sits at that right hand, which leads to the last line here. He rules everything. What does he do at God's right hand? He is ruling everything. And the Hebrews goes on and makes a big deal about including the angels, because the angels were considered by the Hebrew folks to be right under God. You know, it was God and then there was the angels. And so when they were looking at that, and, and, and the writer of Hebrews says, this person is superior, better than the angels. He goes on in the rest of Hebrews to say he's better than Moses, which was obviously the leading figure of the Old Testament law and, and the Jewish nation. And he's better than the priests who are offering sacrifice. In every way, Jesus is superior. Now, there was an one of the things that Hebrews uh, does here a little bit later, it has an interesting quote, an interesting twist on Psalm 8.5. He quotes it, and here's what it says. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, I read the Psalms all the time. When I get to Psalm 8, I never think of Jesus. I think of me. Man, you made him a little lower than the angels. Actually, the Hebrew word means a little lower than God. It implies that it's a little lower than God. And you gave him dominion over the earth, fish of the sea, and so forth. So you always think of man. Well, it does. It has a double meaning. But the writer of Hebrews says, and the son of man that you visit him, a play on words. It's not just us. It's Jesus. Emphasizing he became human. He became one of us. And he ties this verse to Jesus by saying, we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels. This is in Hebrews chapter 2. Becoming human, made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. I like that. Made a little lower than angels for the suffering of death. I wonder if there's some double meaning there too, meaning that angels don't die. So he became a person that actually dies. A little lower than the angels, we are actually humans who actually suffer death, which was interesting because it says putting everything in subjection under his feet. It was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. And he, and he goes on through the rest of Hebrews to show that Jesus' death solved our death problem. And so he's superior to the angels. When we are gathered together in him as a part of his body, we will be superior to the angels. He's superior to everything and everyone. He has a more excellent name. He has a name above all names. And so consider some of the scriptural names of Jesus. There's dozens of them. Here's a few. The Almighty. And this, all, all of these I picked to try to point to the superiority of Jesus. The Almighty, the arm of God, the author of eternal salvation, the Son of God, the blessed and only potentate, the captain of salvation, the chief shepherd, the Christ of God, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, 
the desire of all nations, the prince of the kings of the earth, the glory of God, the governor, the great high priest, the head over all things, the holy one of God, the great I am, Emmanuel, God with us, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lamb of God, the Lord of glory, the only begotten Son. No man has seen God at any time, John says, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. The Prince of life, the Son of the highest, the way, the truth, and the life, and the Word of God. Now, those are some superior phraseology, so you'll know who Jesus is. His name and titles tell the story of who he is. In Philippians chapter 2, and I didn't write that down, so I'm going to read it here. It says this, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those in earth and those under the earth. That pretty much takes care of everybody. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God. A name above every name. He's superior, so he has a name above everybody's name. How many have heard this? Jesus, name above all names, beautiful Savior. Sing it with me. Glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God is with us, blessed Redeemer, living Word. Have you heard this one? Jesus. But, you know, I got to thinking, kings and kings all pass away, but there's something about that name. Something eternal. It doesn't pass away. All right. So that was the uh, supremacy. How about the centrality? The Colossians 1 passage. You can read it in your bulletin there. But it lists a bunch of attributes about Jesus here. And consider the attributes it lists. He's the image of God. That is, he's divine. Some of this is repetitious. This is the express imprint of his nature. He's the firstborn of every creature, that is, of all creation. It emphasizes priority. He was before all creation, and he's sovereign over all creation. He's the creator of all things, in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether they're thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. It seems a little repetitious, but it reiterates the priority in time, I think, and in rank, and in 
if he's priority in time, it's a little bit inclusive. You, he, he ranks higher because he was before everybody. He is the one who holds all things together. In him, all things consist. They cohere. They maintain. Everything is held together. If he were to let go of it, everything would disintegrate. The universe, the cells in your body, everything. He holds it together. If he, if he just speaks the word, Bob is, is, was, I, I love when he often said, when Jesus returns, it says there's going to be a shout. What's the shout going to be? And Bob says, enough is one of the things that he thinks about. And that's right. He's not going to have to fight tooth and nail and gather army. He doesn't need us as an army. We're coming as an army with him, but he doesn't need us. He doesn't need our swords. He doesn't need the angels. And he doesn't have to, like one of those long, long battles in Lord of the Rings, fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. And you wonder, is he going to win? Is it going to, you know, all the devil, all the armies of the world, the 200,000 people in China that were that, that are, are 2 million. There's the 2 million army in China and all the other armies in the Arab world and all the other armies of the world all gathered at Jerusalem at the Battle of Armageddon. And you think, oh, boy, this is going to be a long, drawn out battle. No, he just says, enough. Boom. Done. By the word of his power. Everything is held together by the word of his power. He's the head of the church. That's us. He's the firstborn from the dead, the beginning. His resurrection loosed the pains of death, and he was a first fruit that we celebrate on the Feast of First Fruits, foreshadowing the ultimate resurrection of all of us. He's preeminent in all things. It says that in everything he might be preeminent so that he will come to have first place in everything. That's New American Standard phraseology for that verse. He's the dwelling place of all fullness. What does that mean? The fullness of God, that is. He's the dwelling place for the fullness of God. And you catch that later in Colossians 2, where it says, quote, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And a few verses earlier, part of that divine fullness is described as treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He knows everything. He has all wisdom. And he reconciles, lastly, all things to himself. Reconciles everything to himself, everything in heaven, everything in earth, because of the peace he established in the universe through his redemptive work on the cross. He has redeemed it all, so it all depends on him. It all revolves around him. Ephesians 1 says, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. What is that? That in the ultimate plan, the dispensation of the fullness of times, he would gather together everything in one in Christ, both which are in heaven and on earth, in him even, it says. He is the center. He is like the sun in our solar system. Everything revolves around him. If the sun loses its gravity, the planets go wandering off like a tramp through the sky, the hymn writer says. If, if the sun loses its heat and light, we're in darkness and utter coldness. He is the central figure of history. He's the center of history. Everybody before and after, all the Western calendars and most of the calendar, business calendars of the world, they date from the time of Christ. They've tried to change those little letters afterwards so it doesn't really refer to Christ, but they still date from Jesus' birth. Louis Giglio says he's uh, apparently in the cell, the laminin in the cell that apparently holds the cell together, if he's right about that. There's a symbolic imprint. It's in the form of a cross. Just to remind you, I guess, he holds the cell together. Here's a few scriptural names that emphasize his centrality. He's the cornerstone. 
Everything's built on him. He's the light of the world. Everything is lit up by him. He's the mediator. There's only one God and one man and one mediator, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the central figure in redemption. He's the morning star. The morning star is the central figure, I think what it means for him, in the heavens. The resurrection and the life. He's the shepherd and bishop of our souls. And as Moses said, he's Shiloh. In Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of all the people be. Everybody's gathered around him. When he goes, he's the center of attention. Wherever he goes, everybody's gathered around him. He gathers all people to himself. So because of who he is, as the center of everything, and by the way, Jesus also said in Revelation, I'm the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end, the first and the last, Revelation chapter 1. Alpha and Omega, that's the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter, and he's all the letters in between. He embodies everything. And because of who he is, who's the center, then the answer to every question and every problem is Jesus. Even the third grade Sunday school class guy gets that right, right? The answer to everything is G he has the answers to all things. He has the remedy to everything. He has the solution to every problem. So, how about this one? Do you remember this song? Jesus is the answer for the world today. Stand up and sing it with me. Above him there's no other. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there's no other, Jesus is the way. How about this one? Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. Thanks for singing with me. All right, Hebrews 12, last thing, the example of Jesus. Jesus gives us an example of endurance through trouble. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, it says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, so let's lay aside the things that beset us and run with endurance the race that is set before us. And who's the example? Jesus, looking to him, that's where I get the sermon title, looking to him, fixing our eyes on him, who was the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at God's right hand. And then it says, consider him. Consider him who endured such hostility of sinners against himself. Do you know what he endured? He endured every trouble you've ever had, every trouble that the person sitting next to you ever had, every trouble that everybody had in all the families of all the nations, of all the errors of the world. He endured that on the cross from Adam until that, last person before that millennium comes, I guess, or before maybe the final judgment. He endured all your trouble. He endured it all. How did he do it? Looking for the joy that was set before him. And it says, consider him lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. When you see how Jesus bore everything, then he gives you the strength not to be discouraged and weary with the troubles that you have. As we said, Hebrews are written to encourage people who are suffering. 
the text, this text follows Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, there's the list of heroes of the faith. Do you notice how many of those heroes of the faith that talks about how many troubles they had? They were stoned and sawn asunder and put into pits and, and thrown in lion's dens and so forth. They, they suffered trouble. Hebrews 12 follows that. Those are the cloud of witnesses. Those are the saints that went before us. And they are examples of how to endure. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done, he's made our endurance possible during troubled times. Whatever 2024 brings. Consider the key ideas in this passage. Lay aside the weight. Run with endurance. And how do I do that? I fix my eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith. Here are some other translations to help get at that Greek, those Greek words, what author and finisher means. He's the founder and perfecter. He's the originator. He's the source and perfecter. He's the pioneer and perfecter. He's the source and goal of our faith. Various translations. He started our faith, and he that began a good work in you is going to finish it. So no matter what you face, no matter what you're facing, no matter how difficult, no matter how many nights and tears that you don't sleep because of all the troubles that weigh on you, he will finish what he began. He's the beginning and the end. He's the author. He started it, and he's the finisher. And notice it says he endured the cross for the joy set before him. His example to us to endure is by looking toward the joy. What was the joy for Jesus? I think it was a redeemed relationship. He endured all that pain for us because he wanted to redeem us. He wanted to have a relationship with us. That was his joy. He went through all that pain just so he could have a relationship with us. That's how badly he wanted it. That's why God launched this incredible plan from Genesis chapter 3 to bless the seed of woman so that a redeemer could come. And throughout the Old Testament, all the prophecies about the Messiah, all the pain Jesus went through in the Gospels, all the incredible insights that Paul had in looking back to it. Why? Why did he go through those? Why did he just get rid of man to begin with? Why did he save the eight people in the ark? When, when he, and it looked like everybody just needed to get, be gotten rid of because there was nothing but violence and trouble in the earth. Everybody was going to kill each other off. But he, like a cancer, he wanted to remove it and keep working. Then he picks Abraham and he, and he works through Abraham to build a nation, to have a lineage, to have a Messiah who was going to take all of that pain on himself. Why? Because he wanted a relationship with me. Adam, where are you? David, where are you? Jim, where are you? It was all to repair that breach, that chasm. To consider him who endured that joy. Now, what's your joy? What are you looking forward to? It's the same thing, the relationship with him. Jesus is our joy. So when you look to him, you're looking at the joy. In thy presence is fullness of joy, David says. You're looking for that joy to come, and that's what helps you endure now. And it's not far off, I don't think. It's not far off in any way for any of us because we don't live very long. So whether we go there, whether he comes again, here, there, or in the air, it's not far away. There's joy ahead. So consider him that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. And the Philip says, so you don't lose your purpose or your courage. So the summary is, don't fix your eyes on what's around you. You've got troubles, lots of troubles. 
I have lots of troubles. And my wife reminds me often when I'm looking at the trouble, I, I do, I just, it's a downward spiral. I must have failed as a parent. Oh, and I failed here and I failed that. I'm not doing anything good. It just goes down and down. Or you look at the culture. It's not going to change. We're going to get worse and worse. This must be, you know, and you, all, you, you can't, you're not built to carry that weight. So don't look around you. Look up. Look at the Jesus who is superior to everybody. Look at the Jesus who is central to everything. He's the one that's going to help you endure to the end. If you look up, you will find encouragement and strength to endure. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he's the remedy for everything, for every trouble thing you have. How? By keeping our eyes on him. By the way, I will not pass up this opportunity to say, how is that? How do I keep my eyes on him? You tell me to keep my eyes on him. This is my life message. My life message is no one's greater than their prayer life. If by prayer life you mean walking with Jesus and fellowship with Jesus, constantly in fellowship with Jesus, constantly talking to Jesus, not just during your appointed prayer time, but all day long. Whenever that trouble comes, I have troubles that come to my mind all day long. I can let it spiral me down, which I do all too often, or I can say, hey, I cast my care on you. Please help me, like David did in the Psalms. How often in the Psalms he goes, help, help. Look at all that the enemy's doing against me. Look at all the wicked people around me, whether they were nations or whether they were people who betrayed him. He's always crying out. And he also cries out in praise and in thanksgiving when God has met him. So how do I keep my eyes on him? When you walk with somebody, if I take a walk with my wife, like we do quite often these days, it would be stupid for me just to walk, not look at her, not talk to her. You know, we're not strangers. We're going to talk. When we walk, when you walk with Jesus, and that's a phrase that Paul often used, walking with the Lord. When you're walking with him so that your walk may be perfected, you're talking to him. You walk and talk. So pray without ceasing. Why? Because there's trouble without ceasing. It's not just a, a time you put at the beginning of your day where you try to capture all the bad stuff that happened yesterday. You anticipate all the bad stuff that's going to happen today, and you pour it into that 30-minute or hour prayer time. Hopefully you have at least an hour prayer time. And you pour all of that stuff there and try to solve all the problems. No, do that, but take it with you all day. He's with you. He's right here. He's the center of everything. He owns the universe. He holds your cell together. So he's right here. He's right here right now. So whatever we face tomorrow or next week or in 2024, we can cry out to him and talk to him. He's right there. Jesus opened the veil so that we could enter into the holy place. It was like Peter walking on the water, wasn't it? Jesus says, come walk. Walk toward me. And he gets out and he does the supernatural. And that's what it's going to take, by the way, supernatural in order for us to solve our problems or him to solve it. And he's walking. As long as he's fixed his eyes on Jesus, he's walking. But then the waves get boisterous and he looks around. Don't look around. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's calling to you. The devil, the world, the flesh, everything. To, uh, you know, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. Look how big that wave is. If you look around, you're going to sink. Fix your eyes on Jesus. But fixing your eyes on him means believing in him. It means when, when the world tells you this is the way it is, this is the philosophy to follow, or even more, they'll question whether the word of God is valid, whether Jesus really is there. He, he, that's a historical logged in, like, like our pastor said uh, last week or week before, 
His existence is a matter of historical fact, and so is his resurrection. But when everybody throws doubt, you've got to ask yourself this question, who am I going to believe? This superior son of God, divine person that came down and proved who he said he was, or men? Let every man be a liar, but God will tell the truth. Jesus came as the truth to tell the truth. And so there's you, all of the great intellectuals and wisdom of our whole age, of all the ages combined, all of their philosophies and opinions don't amount to an atom's worth of wisdom compared to what God had. So I'm going to listen to all these people who change their mind every week or every year. They change their science every year. They change their political parties and views and everything changes. I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to listen to the guys who, whose marriage is a, is a shambles and whose life is full of drugs. And These are the people I'm going to listen to. I'm going to listen to the entertainers or even the news pundits. No, there's some person, somebody you can listen to who's superior than everybody else, and that's Jesus. So Larry Norman says it this way. I'm going to sing this for you. You've got to f figure out who Jesus is, and that's what this song is about. A lot of people say different things, lots of opinion about who he is, but who are you going to believe? Some say he was an outlaw, that he roamed across the land with a band of unschooled ruffians old fisherman no one knew just what he came for or exactly what he'd done but they said it must have been something bad that kept him on the run some say he was a poet that he'd stand upon the hill that his voice could calm an angry crowd or make the waves stand still. That he talked in many parables that few could understand. But the people sat for hours just to listen to this man. Some say he was a sorcerer. A man of mystery, why he could walk upon the water, he could make a blind man see. That he conjured wine at weddings and did tricks with fish and bread. That he talked of being born again and raised people from the dead. spoke of being free 
And he was followed by the masses on the shores of Galilee. He spoke out against corruption and he bowed to no decree. But they feared his strength and power, so they nailed him to a tree. Some say he was the son of God, a man above all men, yet he came to be a servant and to set us free from sin. Well, that's who I believe he was, cause that's who I believe. That means we must get ready. It's almost time for us to So who are you going to believe? We have somebody who's proven himself superior. He's the one that we need to believe. We have somebody who's proved himself to be the central of everything, centrality of everything. He's the one we believe. What I'd like for you to do is stand with me and sing. <laughs> 